Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It shall be a government rooted in strong values, the values of justice and progress and community, the values that have guided me all my political life, but a government ready with the courage to embrace the new ideas necessary to make those values live again for today's world. A government of practical measures in pursuit of noble causes. It's the 1st of May 1997. After 18 years in opposition, Tony Blair has led the Labour Party to a landslide majority. The victory comes after a three-year campaign to remake the party as a new, more centrist force under the symbolic new name of New Labour. Blair's first ministry is largely dedicated to demonstrating to the British people that the economy is safe in Labour's hands. His government grants independence to the Bank of England and devolves power to Scotland and Wales and creates a new mayoralty in London. But for four years, the watchword is steady as she goes. It pays off, and the term ends in a second landslide, almost as big as the first. The following term is more radical, with increased public spending and a sometimes controversial programme of public sector reform. But on the 11th of September 2001, Islamic fundamentalists attacked the US, killing more than 3,000 people. The wars that follow come to define Blair's premiership. In 2003, Blair chooses to support the US invasion of Iraq, setting Britain apart from key allies like Germany and France. His government is re-elected with a much reduced majority in 2005. But as the wars drag on and his domestic reforms continue to create enemies, his popularity begins to collapse. By September 2006, pressure from backbenchers, stirred up by his ambitious Chancellor Gordon Brown, forces him to set a timetable for his resignation. He stands down the following summer, aged just 54, Labour's most electorally successful leader of all time, yet apparently doomed to forever be remembered as the man who took Britain into Iraq. I'm John Elledge. And I'm Stephen Bush. Welcome to Prime Ministerial. So this is, I think, in many ways, the one, well, actually, I think possibly, yeah, this and Thatcher are the ones which most kind of stretch, perhaps, to breaking point, the kind of aim of going, well, in their own lights, were they a good prime minister? Because I think they are two people who very few people would struggle to say they didn't have an opinion on. And, who, yeah, this is the politician who was the, the formative political influence and f- dominant figure for our youths. Yeah, I find it very interesting that it's now nearly 13 years since Blair left office and your position on Tony Blair is still a key marker on where you sit in in the Labour Party. His name is still bandied around as an idea in a way that Margaret Thatcher's was before him, but that John Major or or Gordon Brown are not. There's a quote in a biography of of the first uh, Trudeau in Canada, yeah, written about 15 years later, he haunts us still and in many ways Blair is that for the British left. Understandably, right, no one has won an election since 
heated in 2005. Yeah, the Labour Party has tried a number of ways to win without Blair that have not worked, and he is the ghost of the feast in British politics in oh so many ways. So what's your kind of, yeah, in our kind of cards on the table bit at the beginning of these journeys, what are your kind of feelings about Toblerone? So I've softened towards him as the years have gone on. Like he left office when I was in my mid-twenties. I was very glad to see the back of him. I didn't like the wars. I really didn't like the security state stuff, the, the, the sense of 48-day detention and so on. And that, that really aggravated me. And he was, frankly, too right-wing for my tastes at the time. I, I wanted a more left-wing Labour leader. But as the years have gone on, and I've started to feel increasingly like that was the best government of my lifetime in many ways just in terms of what was being done on domestic policy like obviously there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff that was controversial around public sector reform and so on tuition fees is a big one but also there was a lot of investment in public services and there was a sense that the state was there to support the british people rather than the problem to be worked around and he left office before the crisis hits you know yeah so i guess in some ways as the in-house unreformed blairite I was, I've semi had the reverse journey in the, I think, yeah, one of the many things I found slightly surreal about going to university was leaving a bit of East London where, and kind of, obviously I understood in the Tories had 160 seats or some other laughably small number. And therefore I understood that it wasn't quite a moment of universal national rejoicing, but University was the first time when I realised, oh, there were people who, who genuinely were not happy in 1997 and would a decade into new Labour unironically say that the country was being ruined by socialism. And there were, of course, loads of other people at university who thought it was a betrayal of left-wing values. Always struggled not to... I, I, yeah, I have, a, I have a deep emotional connection to the government which rebuilt my school, the school of every other person around there, fitted new kitchens in everyone in the estate, the kind of transformation of the pub. I, I have this kind of quite visceral attachment to it. The slight weirdness, of course, is that since then, a couple of things have happened in my politics. One, I've become a lot more liberal on most of the security stuff, which I guess is a kind of classic sort of ungrateful voter in that I've gone from being someone who used to say to people at university when they went, oh, I don't like CCTV. I was like, look, if you lived where I did, you would come to love cameras just fine. To someone who is deeply like sceptical about state power, is much more critical of that kind of thing. And as someone who broadly was supportive of a lot of the public uh, sector reforms, I guess one of the other things I found slightly weird at university was meeting people who went, well, all teachers are great. Most of my teachers were great, but all teachers aren't great. That's not true. I've gone from being someone who was very supportive of the public sector reform to someone who basically increasingly thinks all of the data we have now suggests that the one thing that really matters is improving the standard of school leadership and the quality of teaching, and then everything else was therefore a bit of a distraction. I, I still am, am a hugely, yeah, think sometimes his sort of later work is, is less interesting and worthwhile, but I think his approach to, to elections when he was actually in his pomp uh, is still useful, albeit in a completely different economic context but with the slight weirdness and caveat the one thing about my politics which hasn't changed and I think this becomes more true almost with every day is my belief that the Iraq war was a disaster just an utter disaster actually part primarily weirdly in terms of his decisions an utter disaster 
for him and for this country, yeah, ultimately the US would have gone in alone unilaterally anyway, but an utter disaster for him and therefore a disaster for the country. So those are my long and rambling and confused thoughts about Blair going into this. Well, let's let's park Iraq for now because I'm, I'm fairly confident we're going to come back to that one later. I should say, by the way, that I was I grew up in Essex. So I was not surprised to discover there were Tories in the country and people who, people who didn't want a Labour government. One question I do want to sort of answer before we get to our interviewees, though, is do you think that government was left wing? Because this is still a matter of some contention. Yeah, I guess for me at least, of course. It introduced a statutory wage floor. It declared that the Met were institutionally racist. It, it, again, I'm, I know I'm really hard attached to the new kitchens, but it, it built a bunch of new It regenerated the social housing stock. You obviously didn't know and do enough to build more, but it, I just think, like, ultimately, what is the definition of, of left-wing that doesn't include, yeah, a huge reduction in child poverty, which for me is still, the, like, the primary purpose of having a left government. Two purposes of having a left-wing government are, one, the kind of global mission of saving the world so we don't have, so we don't boil alive in the one thing capable of sustaining all of us, and also to improve the condition of the poor at home and abroad. Yeah, it created diffid. Yeah, yeah, I just think, for me at least, the, the argument about whether it was left-wing it's not just in its open and shut. I, I again, and this comes back to the visceral um, element, I just find it so hard to remove my own life experience from the argument about that government not being left-wing. OK, so I think that's pretty clear. I think what's coming across here is that Stephen Bush is a Tory. Anyway, I think probably we should hear from our interviewees. First up, we're going to speak to a, a researcher, an academic, who's done a lot of work looking at the, the domestic record of the Blair government, Dr Kitty Stewart. I thought it had been pretty impressive. I mean, Blair came in, committed, made big statements about social justice, which has almost become do a girl now for prime ministers to do that. But and he had a lot going for him, as you've outlined, in terms of economic growth, big majorities, uh, people really hungry for change and fed up. But I think he really did do an enormous amount. With, he had those good set of cards, and I think he did a, a huge amount uh, with them, particularly in his first uh, term. So I think my assessment at that point was that, of course, there were more. There was more that he could have done, and I outlined. A, I think one of the things I think I highlighted there was income inequality at the very top is something that he had explicitly ruled out as being a problem. And I think certainly now we look back and think he could have taken that one on and things might look different in some ways at this point if he had. I think Britain over those 10 years was really transformed in terms of social policy and I think people's lives were really seriously improved. So we saw big investments in health and in education. We saw a whole set of new policies about for the under fives, which had previously not really been part of the welfare state, so Sure Start, children's centres, free nursery education, a series of new benefits for families with babies to try and prevent poverty in that first year, M more generous maternity leave, mums being able to spend twice as long by the end with their babies as they had at the beginning. And then plus on top of that, the whole tax credit system, which really brought down child poverty, which had been rising, rose dramatically during the 1980s, brought that down by about a third by the end. And similar action on pensioner poverty. We had the national minimum wage, which now seems very uncontroversial, but at the time was quite a big issue. Investments in area, regeneration. It's, it's a huge and very impressive list across a, a very wide range of social policy areas. Would you say broadly, is that still your sense now, or would you say that you feel differently about that legacy 10 years on? I think, I suppose, 10 years on, looking back, we, well, things have been very different since then, and an awful lot of that legacy has been 
unraveled by the decisions taken by the coalition as part of austerity measures following the financial crash. So I guess the question is, was, that, was there anything Blair could have done about that? to protect his legacy. And I think one thing we could highlight is that one thing both Blair and Brown, Gordon Brown did, was they really achieved a huge amount. They did, they spent a lot of, of money and invested in, in really important services. I think they could have done more to make the case for why they were doing that and for the fact that that cost money. So they took investment in some of these services, education and health, from very low levels by international comparative terms if we look at other European countries, to average levels. It's not like we were suddenly really big spenders. We'd got to be average uh, and we were therefore keeping up with other countries. But what we didn't do is increase taxes really by quite enough to keep up with that increase in public spending because Blair didn't want to really make that case and say, look, if we want to be, if we want to have high quality public services like other European countries, it does cost more and we're going to have to pay for them. So they did it by stealth. It was really, talk about redistribution by stealth. And they avoided doing things like raising the top rate of income tax until right at the very end after the financial crash. And although the public finances were in a better position in 2007 than in 1997, I think that's important to, to reiterate and underline that, they weren't as healthy as they could have been going into the financial crash. I think uh, Labour and the legacy have paid a, a high price for that because I think it, it made it much easier for the coalition government to say, look at this, they overspent, they spent too much and therefore to start unravelling things under the banner of austerity. The thing I was really struck by when I did some of the research for, for this episode is at every point, every couple of years, someone in Downing Street does a memo about their strategic priorities and one is to always to win the next election which they do a very good job of till Blair himself leads the scene and then the second is to make the case for tax and spend and the third is to make the case for the European Union and those do feel I think quite painful in hindsight because in both cases you can see why it was easier not to but it, it did I think definitely contribute to the decades that we've had since. Yeah, it feels to me like a recurring theme of the Blair years is not being quite confident enough about making the case for what they wanted to do. So they didn't really want to sort of tackle some of the assumptions in the right-wing press. They didn't necessarily sort of want to be out there saying, actually, to fund the kind of state we're talking about, we need to be raising taxes or, we, or you know, there, there are benefits to being in the European Union. And again, I come back to a question here, which is like, how much of that was them being cowardly and how much of that was just inevitable in the kind of political environment we were in at the time yeah i think that is the great unanswerable in some ways and i think yeah the, the fascinating question for me is does the partial success of labor in the 2017 election show that labor could always have done better with a more explicit argument about tax and spend or was the political economic and media context so different it's a 20-year gap between the 1997 and 2017 that it would always have been impossible to in 1997 go actually your taxes will have to go up i think in 1997 it was not it would not have been but well one, one interesting thing that Labour did was they were so determined not to be the party of tax and spend that they committed, remember now going back to 97, they came into that election committing to stick to Conservative spending plans until 1999. And they did that. So actually, when we look back, they, did, they started to introduce some policies at that point, like the national minimum wage, and they had one source of revenue, which was a windfall tax on utilities, which they spent on new deals for young people. 
But beyond that, they, it was only in 99, really, that their investment, their, their public spending policies start. So it's like they said, look, we can do this. We can stick to the budget. And now the economy is growing and we're going to start spending more. But I think after that, going forward, they had, once they had built their credibility, I think it would have been possible in the early 2000s to start explaining a bit, to being a bit more open with the public and saying, look, we've started investing in education, in health, sure, start, but these things do cost money. And building on that, we, would, we need to think about what priorities are and this is what we'd like to do. So I think they, then there was the Iraq war. It's hard, to, priorities got changed at that point, I think. So maybe that's partly why. The thing when you look back at that period is it was a government which did an awful lot in terms of Labour's values and aims, but which was disfigured by infighting. Was there a substantial policy difference between Blair and Brown in in social policy? Was that fight worthwhile? I I don't know. It's hard to answer that. I, I think it was more personality than policy really or Gordon Brown I think one of one of Labour's big contributions was the tax credit system which really made a big difference to 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 family incomes and reduced child poverty for families both in and out of work and that was really Gordon Brown Blair made the big pledge we're going to eradicate child poverty but it was really that was Brown's baby and he really ran with that and I think Blair let him do that when in 2007 when Brown came into office I think there was a sense that among people following this stuff that perhaps now that Blair had lost his interest in social justice by that point. It was really a big first-term thing. And then he'd moved on to other things, one of them being public sector reform, but from a less social justice perspective. And I think there were hopes that maybe Brown would, would come back to that. And it, then the financial crash happens. And to be fair to Brown, in the aftermath of the crash, he really did have the, have those pro- kind of priorities at heart. So he increased benefits for fa- for children, for pensioners. He kept on with his spending commitments on education. So he was, tr- I think, he was trying to do those things in difficult circumstances. And of course, that didn't really help the budget deficit overall by 2010. Why do you think the the kind of Blair legacy has had a hole in the middle in terms of its durability? Well, I think aside from this question of making the case for tax and and spend, I think the other big issue is probably the failure, when we're thinking about working age people, again, thinking that the market will provide in terms of employment. So you get, you've got the tax credit system, which is going to top up low wages a little bit and make that pay. But you don't really have a regional or industrial strategy that really thinks about jobs in some of these places, post-industrial parts of Britain. And I think, in a sense, so social policy was doing a fantastic job of kind of plugging those gaps and making life better in those areas in many ways, including in public sector jobs. But then when that gets stripped away after from 2010 with austerity measures you strip back a lot of those social policies have been cut sure start centers are closing youth centers are closing and these have knock-on effects on on local communities and suddenly you're back to where i guess you're back to where you were in 97 and i think that's one of the things that we're seeing and we've seen in terms of brexit one of the things you often hear about housing benefits is that it's effectively just subsidising overpriced housing costs. And you see, you hear the same sorts of arguments with some of the sort of payments that you're maybe what's going on here is that the government is just helping out, helping employers to pay less than they should be. It's basically subsidising poor employers. Is it possible that some of these things were the wrong strategy and that actually it would, they just enabled people out there in the market to behave quite badly? 
to, towards their tenants or their employees or whoever it may be? Yes, I think you've got a minimum wage under underpinning. So you've got some sort of base, which I think... So I think the, the minimum wage was a key part of... If you'd had the tax credit strategy without that, it, it would have been really problematic. But, yeah, I think to an extent that is true. And so if you haven't, inve- you haven't invested in the jobs themselves and you haven't invested in the housing itself and then you start to strip back some of those subsidies on top of it, you're leaving people very exposed. You mentioned earlier, and I think, because obviously we have discussed it and I imagine we'll discuss it for quite a large chunk of this episode, but Iraq... You talk about it as a kind of the focus was moved away. I think there are lots of, I would I say there are probably three opinions about Iraq and the Blair premiership. The first, I suppose, is that it was the correct decision and, and you could hold on to that as an idea. The second is that it was the wrong decision, even, but actually it made very little difference outside of Britain because Washington would have done it anyway. And then I suppose the kind of third is that without... British participation, it wouldn't have happened. But from a social policy perspective, there's, I think, probably a kind of fourth opinion, which is, would a Labour government which hadn't gone into Iraq have been more successful? And do you think that that fourth question, which I think can obviously kind of slot along with any of those three diagnoses of the rights and wrongs of the Iraq war, what do you sort of make of it as a case? I think, who knows, it's hard to say, but... it seems to me that the Iraq war really marked a, a turning point in terms of Blair's interest and focus on social policy and social justice in Britain. So let's talk to two people who were actually there and who we can definitely describe as Blairites. Andrew Adonis was you know, head of the policy unit, later ennobled to the Lords, you know, sent to many delivery-focused departments under both Tony Blair and, and, and later Gordon Brown. Peter Mandelson, of course, as well as being... Secretary of State for Business under Gordon Brown, yeah, Minister for the Cabinet Office under under Tony Blair, was the third man of New Labour, yeah, yeah, the architect of a, a lot of that government's political strategy. So we started by asking Mandelson about what Blair wanted to achieve. I mean, that first majority in 1997, and indeed the one four years later in 2001, were enormous by historic standards. Did those did that come as a surprise? Yes and no. No in the sense that if you can remember what it was like in the 1990s, which you can't because you're too young. Oh, no, I can't. The, the Conservative government was riven with conflict, internal conflict and disputes. The Prime Minister was constantly being defied and challenged. The Cabinet was breaking up people. I mean, ill will, ill will. I was spewing out from all directions from the government. Does it sound familiar? And in a sense, therefore, the country was crying out for change. And we represented a change that was not only a radical one, but also one that they could put their arms around, one that they could easily embrace. But even so, having lost, what, four elections previously, you were bound to be a little hesitant in taking the next one for granted. I think one of the arguments you would hear from the hard left is that any Labour leader could have won the 1997 election. And actually, the fact it was, it was Tony Blair was almost a coincidence to the scale well, of that victory. Why lost the previous three then, if it was so easy for a Labour leader to win an election? Yes, you could say that Conservative government was in so much trouble, as, as I've described. The Conservatives were not popular in 1919. Yes, they had wisely dropped Thatcher in favour of John Major, and he seemed... a a more sort of centrist 
reasonable, rational proposition than Mrs. Thatcher had become by the end of the 1980s. That's true. And we may well have won the election under a different leader, but I'm absolutely confident in saying that we wouldn't have won that majority with a different leader. To what extent would New Labour have been possible without him? Or is it simply that he was New Labour? I don't think he was New Labour, but I don't think you'd have had New Labour without him. He came to the leadership of the party in 1994 after a great deal of thought, soul-searching, development of his own views. But also at the heart of New Labour was a sense of purpose, of drive, uh, in which leadership both of the party and the country, was very important. And therefore, to that extent, the nature of the individual and his personality was absolutely critical. Some people have described him as a man of messianic zeal. I'm not sure I agree with that, but he was a person of deeply held conviction. On almost anything he thought about, and on any conclusion, he reached it after considerable thought, And once he'd arrived at it, there was not really much shifting away from it. He really was somebody of conviction. And I think that's quite rare in politics. Most people progress in politics and get to the top of politics, oftentimes by zigzagging around, sitting on fences, sucking up to different wings and factions in their party, and being all things to all people, and actually not a great deal at all in many cases. It's interesting that Manderson wanted to talk about Blair's character, not least because Andrew Adonis said something quite similar. The Brownites had a view of Tony, who had no idea, because he didn't read books, who, who did, couldn't talk about philosophical socialism at all, who was part-time. They developed a kind of caricature of him, which, of course, like all caricatures, had some elements of truth. Tony didn't read many books. He didn't talk about ethical and philosophical socialism at all. He was much more interested in the realm of ideas uh, with religion than he was with their politics. I remember once visiting him on holiday because we happened to be very close by and he invited us over for lunch and I arrived on the beach and he had two books with him. One was the Quran and the other was a commentary on the Quran and he'd actually read those two unlike most of the we used to at the summer it was very funny David Miliband and I we used to do this game of asking people for books which we should put in the Prime Minister's box for the summer and we'd all come up with the very worthy books you know Anthony Giddens on the future of the third way and I would put in Jenkins' latest biography actually he would flick through those because he was a bit interested in biography but the books he, the only books I think he ever really read cover to cover were books on religion. He did have a very strong philosophical underpinning to his social democracy. It was a, a Christian socialist set of views that he'd formed while he was a student. And his the chaplain at his college, St John's College, Oxford, who was an Australian chaplain who was a Christian socialist, was hugely significant on him. And he did read some books about it then, but he didn't read many books about politics thereafter. And he always knew what he thought. I remember once when Philip Gould, who was his pollster, who was a great friend of his, so he was quite close to him personally, once when he was just being a bit irritable, and Tony could be irritable, and we had one of these sessions on polling, Tony cut him short after about two sentences and said, Philip, I know what they think. I said, I don't need you to tell me what the polls are. The question is, what do we do next? And that was very Tony. What was the kind of approach to government when you were yeah, in the policy unit? How did he see the task of being prime minister? Tony was explainer in chief. 
his view all the time was, uh, unless he had a narrative, was a word he used a lot, a narrative that carried the public, that won through with the media, and he felt entirely comfortable with explaining at any given time, then he didn't have a, a story that could win through. And so he was constantly honing his narrative. He used to write a note for his office team every Sunday, which was essentially a, a constant iteration like the sat-nav updating every week of where he saw politics. He was by far the best observer of politics of anyone I knew, much better than any political commentators at the time. His note would always be in three parts. It would be the first part would be where things are at. That was a phrase he always used, where things were at. And people either got it or they didn't get it. People who didn't understand where things were at, didn't get it. That was a sort of classic Blair phrase. Then what it is that we need to do, we being Labour, and then what do I need to do? So he had an extraordinarily fluent mind and mode of of expression. And though he wasn't the hardest working prime minister, much less hardworking than than Gordon Brown as prime minister, and, and he didn't read a huge amount either. He would read essential notes. The art of getting something through to him is you had to have a word with Jeremy Hayward or Jonathan Powell to be sure that your note went on the top of the box because if it was at the bottom of the box, there was only a 50% chance he would actually get to it. And sometimes you would get the dreaded tick. Now, what the dreaded tick meant was that he might or might not have glanced at it. He certainly didn't engage with it. If you were going to get actual comments and, or, or an, an engagement, it had to be at the top of the box. Then sometimes he would engage... And it also had to be something that he was interested in. Now, to be blunt, a lot of the things the government was doing are like things like housing policy and benefits reforms and things like that. His eyes glazed over and you could never engage him. The things I did, education, public services, that he was genuinely interested in. He was absolutely on the ball when it came to schools and hospitals. He saw that as an absolutely critical modernising mission which united both the working classes and the middle classes. He saw it as at, at the core of the new Labour mission. Then you could engage with him, but even then you had to be at the top of the box, not at the bottom of the box. In terms of that sort of lack of Prime Minister hyperactivity, we've talked earlier about how Blair Brown was the fulcrum of the government. Do you think that ever made for a dysfunctional policy-making process? Curiously, at the time, I thought it was semi-dysfunctional because um, the relationship between Tony Blair and, and, and Gordon Brown was mediated by Jeremy Hayward. That was how policy was done. Occasionally, I, I played a part of a role in it, but because I was persona non grata with the Brown people, because I was seen as being Tony's brain, and therefore that made me, by definition, persona non grata, because what they're seeking to do is to undermine Tony. In terms of actually getting the work of the government done and, and getting policies that could be agreed week by week, this was Jeremy Hayward who did it. So I thought of this at the time as semi-dysfunctional, even dysfunctional. But as I've looked at how governments have worked since, I think it was a remarkably well-functioning government. And what at the time looked like dysfunction was, in fact, as I now look back on it, a, a serious problem of containing Gordon Brown's ambition within a government that was basically working. And it was a pity that Tony and Gordon couldn't work their relationship out better than they did. And I think that Labour paid a huge price for that, but it wasn't a dysfunctional government. That, by the way, is a prime attribute of first-rate leaders, is that they animate people to work for them and to work towards them without needing to tell them in any detail what's needed. Because if you need to tell people in any detail as a leader what it is that needs to be done in order to take their agenda forward, then you are certain to fail because there's one of you as a leader and there are thousands of followers out there. And unless they know instinctively what it is that is involved in being a Blairite, being a Thatcherite and all of that, then you will fail. How many people out there are Mayites and know instinctively what she's going to think on any issue? There aren't any because she doesn't know what she thinks herself on any issue, which is why she's a failed leader.
From the New Statesman's World Review comes Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series that examines the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> I'm your host, Emily Tampkin, and I'll be joined by expert guests to examine how President Biden's core campaign pledges have held up, specifically foreign policy. We've seen a huge change of tone and rhetoric in the relation between the United States and Europe. Uh, the administration does not call the EU a foe. Immigration. I think a lot of people who were opposing Trump's policies, you know, most obviously the separation of the children at the border, I think may also find it very uncomfortable that they might be complicit in electing someone who is now keeping those policies in place. And voting rights. Just search for World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So that's how he worked. What did he achieve? One of the problems discussing what I regard as a hugely progressive era in Second World War politics uh, in Britain uh, is that you have a caricature of the government fighting, in my view, with the reality of what was actually done and actually achieved. And of course, it's fueled by the current fight in the Labour Party between the hard left uh, and the centre left, a, a, a caricature of a sort of neoliberal government that sort of followed a consistent and unbroken line from Mrs Thatcher uh, onwards, versus, in my view, uh, a very different nature of of the government, an economic record, a record on health, on education, on social mobility, on child and pensioner poverty, whose outcomes are ones that governments today would kill for, which demonstrate, in my view, a very radical and a very successful progressive project. Now, if you take this caricature, the neoliberal government that delivered for a metropolitan elite and big business versus the reality, I would just take you back to my own constituency in Hartlepool in the northeast uh, of England. I didn't leave Hartlepool until 2004 when I went to when I went to Brussels. But if you had been one of my constituents in Hartlepool at the end of Tony Blair's time as Prime Minister, you could have compared your own personal living standards very favourably between 1997 and 2007. You could visit your newly built local schools in Hartlepool, as we had as a result of building for the future, 
hospital completely revamped uh, and overhauled as well. The actual experience of those working people in a town like Hartlepool, not a metropolitan elite, not a city, not in London, not in the southeast, but on the northeast of England, a very different quality of life, higher living standards, greater rights and protections at work, also available to you, equality of public services that were universally available to all, not just those who were lucky enough to live in a particular postcode or could afford the extra or could jump queues. Now this is a very different qualitative experience for those uh, people and it is a, a completely at odds uh, with the sort of neoliberal big business caricature that is offered and served up ritually by the hard left now about the Blair government. A phrase like that, it's a pretty admirable record. Why do you think it's not more widely seen in those terms? Why do you think that it is sometimes seen as this kind of neoliberal, even centre of government? Why, why are these achievements not respected? Oh, because for two reasons. One, it was a very different sort of Labour government. People had a, an idea of what Labour governments were like and what they did, and this one fought with that image. And secondly, almost from the moment Blair left in 2007, you've had, first of all, a sort of gentle debunking of New Labour under Gordon Brown, then a more serious and menacing attack, undermining, I would say, delegitimization of New Labour under Ed Miliband, and now a sort of wholesale uh, attack, an attempt to bury New Labour by Jeremy Corbyn. So in a sense, at least two, two and a half Labour leaders have spent almost every year since trying to undermine the record and the reputation of New Labour. Tony himself now regards the first term as a slight wasted opportunity. You at the time were in the Cabinet Office responsible for almost enforcing his will in terms of his political projects. Do you think that is a correct characterisation of the first term? I think it's true that in an effort to reassure people and to demonstrate that we were going to be economically responsible and that we weren't just as the same old Labour government that was going to come in and screw, it, screw up the economy. I think that we were in the first term of the government, uh, of Blair's administration, possibly too cautious, certainly in taking the outgoing Conservative government's budget and its spending plans uh, and saying that we weren't going to make radical or rapid departures from them. Having said that, in that first term too, we won public support uh, for a substantial increase in tax for the National Health Service. So bold that when the Prime Minister announced it, the Chancellor was less than enthusiastic or less than happy that he'd uh, done so in such an unvarnished way. But it was a great success. And But I think that the fact that we were able to do that and to win public support for it possibly indicates that we were overly cautious in other areas. And if we had moved further and faster at the beginning, we would not only have used that time well, but also taken the public with us. One of the interesting questions about this government, about the Blair government is why many of its achievements do not seem to have endured, why a lot of its work does seem to have been undone by the government that followed it. Back to Andrew Adonis. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't accept that it hasn't endured. The minimum wage is still there. The big improvements in health and education are still there. We still have 
successful public educational health systems. I don't think that's by, would, it was inevitable by any means if the Tories had got re-elected in 1997. I think if they'd been re-elected in 1997, we would have had an explosion in the size of private education because the education system has got, was on the skids in a really serious way. Particularly in London, one of the most remarkable things that's happened in education is that despite massive rising prosperity, the state education system in London has been a phenomenal success and has contained the growth of private schools, which otherwise wouldn't have happened. And the NHS is a live, uh, publicly funded uh, uh, health service in the world. So I don't for a moment accept that the Blair legacy has been dismantled. What didn't happen, because of course we lost the election in 2010 and we got a Tory government, because we didn't advance on it. And what you always want to do in politics if you're a social democrat is to advance. What happened, unfortunately, was that there was some measure of retreat because the Tories got elected. And of course, a massive measure of retreat on Europe, where Tony, I don't think he did enough on Europe, actually. Uh, my own view is, as uh, in retrospect, is that we should have gone into the single currency. So I think some very big mistakes were made on Europe as it happens. But we, he certainly didn't retreat on Europe. And when you look at what's happened since 2010, does any serious social democrat in the country, looking at the state of the country, we wouldn't be better off with a modernising Labour government under Tony Blair? I personally think we would be much better off of a modernising social democratic government under Tony Blair, but opinion polls do tend to suggest that not a huge number of people agree with that proposition. So maybe that's the more interesting question. Why do you think is it's that government is not looked back on with the respect it perhaps well, deserves? Well, that's a sort of unhistorical way of looking at it. Obviously, you can't bring back something that has, 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 has been gone for 10 years. It's a bit like saying in 1960, it'd be a great idea if we had Winston Churchill. I'm afraid the moment has passed. The significant thing is that every electoral test Tony Blair faced, he won hands down and built a progressive modernising majority in a way that nobody had done basically since Howard Wilson. And Howard Wilson did it fleetingly, really, only successfully for one election in 1966. And the second test, which I feel very strongly as I look back on it, is would more of it have worked? And more of it would definitely have worked if Blair hadn't retired in 2007 and had himself fought the 2010 election, you can't say with any certainty what would have happened in history. But given how close Gordon Brown ran it in 2010, I don't have any doubt in my mind whatsoever that if Tony hadn't been hounded out by a split on the social democratic left in 2007, but had fought the 2010 election, we would have won it. And I think you would then have had the fourth Labour term so that, that Blair and that Labour government would have matched in duration as well as achievement, the Thatcher government. In terms of the, the sort of handover, I think there are two interesting sort of things you brought up. One is you think leaving not really in the single currency was a mistake, and the second was in the 2007 handover was a mistake. Mm. How much of a mistake do you think it was not to move Gordon Brown in 2001? I don't think there's a mistake not to move Gordon. I think that the Blair-Brown partnership was the bedrock of that government. It was tragic that it didn't work better. But actually, if you look at what's happened in politics since 2007, it didn't work too badly. And it's a particular pity that Gordon spent basically his entire time from 2001 thinking he would be a better prime minister and more effective than than Tony. And he got it fixed into his head, I think partly because he was constantly told it by the sycophants around him as well, that not only would he be better, but he would be ideologically purer than Tony, and that, that he had a duty to the to the left to replace Tony because Tony wasn't a real social democrat. Now, that really is the narcissism of, of small differences. And the particular quality of Tony that made me so certain it would be a mistake was that he was the campaigner 
par excellence. Tony never lost an election. Gordon never won one. And looking at the fine margins that we had in 2010, that was clearly a mistake. So what I said in the memo in 2006, which is that there's no such thing, I said, as smooth and orderly transitions, and the idea that Gordon is somehow going to be able to revive this government after you, it wasn't because I had a, a special access to the crystal ball. It was just the lessons of history, and they were entirely borne out. Going back to the idea of this being a, of it being a kind of reforming social democratic government, why do you think that it's seen by so many people on the contemporary left as effectively a government of the centre-right? Iraq. It's one word that describes that completely. It's Iraq. That's, uh, that is, it, just as Vietnam for Johnson. Uh, Johnson was one of the greatest reforming presidents in the US history, but his name is still Mudd on the left in American politics. Why? Because he fought a pointless war, he sent tens of thousands of Americans to their death, and he besmirched the reputation of idealists on the left forever by associating himself with a disastrous war. And I'm afraid the same is true of Tony. You said you're a historian. How long do you think has to pass before a reassessment becomes possible? Uh, there will never be a reassessment of Iraq because Iraq is never going to be regarded as a success. But of the domestic record, like how long and before it becomes well, possible to talk about the domestic well, record? You won't be able to. The two will always be together, just as people talk about civil rights in Vietnam in the same sentence, and you will never divorce them. Does Peter Mandelson agree with that? My view of Iraq is that it didn't undo the achievements uh, of the government, whether in the respect of economic, uh, sustainable economic growth and rising living standards that we enjoyed for the bulk of the Labour government. It doesn't undo or reverse our record in, in, in health, in education, in the expansion of university opportunities and of the social mobility changes which I have described. But in no doubt at all that in, in foreign policy, yes, for many the toppling of, a, of an evil dictator in Iraq it was an undoubted plus for the world. But in their view, and I can understand why they take this view, it came at too high a military cost and too high a price was paid by the country itself. And I understand why people regard it as a mistake. I would just describe it as an honest uh, mistake. But did it undo the entire domestic uh, record and set of achievements? socially, economically, across the waterfront uh, of policy. No, it did not. And I think that those who, you know, when they talk about the Labour government, simply want to talk about Iraq, do so because they're people who never agreed with New Labour. They were not there at the conception of it. They didn't support the rolling out of its policies in government. They wanted to dump uh, on what we stood for and what they were, what we were doing from a vast height, and they haven't given up and probably never will. So they will carry on talking about Iraq and how we pandered to the needs of big business, etc., deliberately overlooking the entire record of what was, in my view, a very successful, very radical, progressive government in this country. It does seem to be the inescapable fact of the Blair Premiership, no matter how you look at it, no matter how much you want to start talking about investment in public services or public sector reform or the minimum wage or whatever it is, ultimately the conversation always inevitably comes back to Iraq. Do you think that was inescapable? Do you think once, once that invasion has happened, do you think that's always going to be the thing that's hanging around, isn't it, like an albatross forever? Or do you think there is an alternate timeline where things 
could have been different without us skipping that whole war. I mean, obviously, I have a huge cognitive bias for someone who was against it, albeit for slightly confused teenage reasons, and is still against it, I hope, now for considerably more coherent ones. I just think, ultimately, the, the decision, and as, as someone who actually has read Chilcott cover to cover because I am just that cool, the decision to... to, to join that war under the utterly misguided, deluded and a kind of amped up on the traditional fantasies that so many British governments have engaged in of unique influence over the United States. The decision to do that was always going, is always going to colour the historical record. A, because, actually no, I was about to say A, but yeah, yeah, grimly we may be about to live through the, the counterfactual and of course Harold Wilson lived through the counterfactual and then ultimately if you don't provide the US with with multilateral support when it decides it wants to go on a misguided policy adventure it does it anyway. In terms of its effect on the world I actually think Blair's decision to go into Iraq was negligible. The US would have gone into Iraq anyway. What was hugely destructive for this country not least of course for the people who died in Iraq but without Iraq you do not have the destruction of the, the Blair Premiership's political capital. It's so integral to the circumstances of his fall, to the loss of so many seats in 2005, to, to everything that's happened to the Labour Party thereafter. I just think that because of that, it will always be, yeah, not only will it always be the kind of the, this thing that overshadows everything else, but it has to be. Because it was a disaster. It was a disaster for the British soldiers who were sent there including some of the ones who returned with life-changing injuries. It was a disaster for Tony Blair personally. Therefore, it was a disaster for the Labour Party because they haven't uh, won since. Therefore, it was a disaster for the country. And I therefore think, correctly, it deserves to overshadow everything. Yeah, I suppose without Iraq, you don't get Jeremy Corbyn on the most basic level. The whole of recent political history looks totally different. I actually have a quite a, a hipster take on Iraq. Don't worry, I'm not going to say it was a good idea. But something that is often forgotten in discussions of this stuff is that by the time you get to 2003 there have been two previous occasions on which Blair has used British military force for liberal ends and everybody has said this is going to be a disaster what are you doing why are you doing this and he was right and they were wrong in both Sierra Leone and Kosovo that use of force largely worked as we wanted it to so by the time you get to 2003 Everyone's telling him it's going to be a disaster, but he thinks he knows better. He's not listening. Paddy Ashdown was pro-Kosovo and pro-Sierra Leone. I think it's true to say that some of the people in the Labour Party who opposed the Iraq war were of the never-send-anyone-anywhere thing. But the, the, coalition, the coalition for Iraq was narrow. I do think that was one of the things that went wrong before Tony Blair was, and he saw it as part of the same. I remember, you know, one of his farewell tours, someone asked him, What's, what is New Labour's foreign policy? And he went, it's liberal interventionism. But, of course, one of the other reasons why the Iraq war is a historic disaster is it has completely destroyed the political coalition for intervention anywhere. And it means that when countries do intervene, they intervene in a kind of don't worry voters will be in and out faster than you can say Jack Robinson. So you end up with Libya, where you like where you have effectively British forces there for a day and then you leave a kind of badly split country. Yeah, because actually, crucially, the things about them that succeeded in Kosovo and Sierra Leone. Basically, foreign intervention against an atrocity works when you intervene on behalf of someone. Uh, a democratically elected leader who has been barred from the presidential palace, a president who the army has disappeared in the night, an indigenous minority who are facing the bayonets of, a, of another group. Because you have a clear sense of who you want to leave in charge afterwards, and the people you want to leave in charge 
have a pre-existing democratic legitimacy, all of which was obviously not the case. You can't just in go Iran. in and smash everything up and yeah. for the best. And, and, and quite visibly, democracies don't like to stick around as long as the necessary level of tidying up that you'd have to do. And I just think all of these things were clear. So I think even though you can make a case for why he started to believe it, I just still don't think it's a gal. I get out of jail is, is, is no, no I, I wasn't trying to imply it was yeah. I just mean from a psychological point of view I think that's my reading of one of the reasons he went so wrong there anyway we could talk about this all day something you can tell from the fact the country's been talking about this for the last 17 years now but we should probably go back to our panel and ask them what was Tony Blair's legacy now, if I had to sum up the overall story it's they spent a lot of money and they achieved an awful lot in terms of changing people's lives but they don't want to say that they can't say that first bit we spent a lot of money because they that's become politically toxic for them so I think their failure to to make that case and certainly in, in general elections they've refused to argue on the basis of their records has probably affected the way that other that Labour Party members and the general remember their record and obviously they were it's a whole other podcast to discuss whether or not the 2017 election was about Labour or the Conservatives, which, which, but actually even in an election where they advanced, they did effectively deal with the spending issue by going, well, he, I was in opposition effectively throughout all of that spending, so it's nothing to do with me. And they had a whole costings document built around this idea, and this time they would be fiscally uh, responsible, even though, of course... Actually, when you look at the macroeconomic record, it's very hard to suggest that the Labour government wasn't fiscally responsible. And I think that's, I mean, when we look back, to, that's, it's tragic, really, because they made so much effort to be fiscally responsible at the act. That's exactly what they didn't want in 97. What Blair was determined not to do was to land Labour with this idea that they were irresponsible. If we hadn't had the financial crash, it would have been a very different uh, story, I think, in terms I, of how they remembered. I have a hazy memory of, I think, early 2006, when Gordon Brown thought he was probably going to be taking over as prime minister quite soon he did redefine the economic cycle to give himself more headroom to spend a bit more which was, was a nakedly political move but he made it at exactly the wrong point just so that was the thing people remembered when the crash happened and i think that did open the door a crack and enable the tories to say they've been overspending for a decade when in fact it was they've overspent a little bit in the last six months that's right. As the revenue started crashing after 2007, he kept spending and he spent more. And, and that made a difference to people's lives. So we see child poverty, unlike in many other European countries, child poverty kept falling during the recession. We're often told that's because it's a relative measure and median incomes were falling, but that's not true. It's also, in absolute terms, child poverty kept falling, pensioner poverty kept falling. And, but there was a, yeah, there was a price to pay, a political price to pay for that. If we hadn't had an election in 2010, if it had till 2012 and the economy had started recovering, again, things might have been quite different. But I think that if you look at not just the individual policy areas of the Blair government, but look at it from a wider, sort of take a helicopter view from, from the political perspective of the country as a whole. Essentially, New Labour created a government that had to do two things. One was to modernise and pull into the 21st century a country that by 1997 had become quite uncertain about itself, quite unconfident, almost old-fashioned following the sort of roller coaster ride and the public sector retrenchment of the 1980s under Mrs Thatcher. Uh, so modernising the country, as it were, pulling it forward, pulling it, getting it ready and taking it into the 21st century was, was one major challenge of the government. But the second was to demonstrate that Labour itself, as a party uh, in government, 
was a party of economic competence as well as social compassion. People had said of Labour, they're, they're very caring and they're very compassionate and they want a fair society. They don't know how to run an economy, they don't know how to create the wealth that would enable us to enjoy those higher uh, standards. And what we had to do was to create a new idea of what a Labour government would be and do in practice. We had to create uh, a, a modern idea of the state, not as a monolith, not as a sort of owner and controller of large swathes of the economy, but the state as enabler, as guarantor of, of people's rights, the services and high quality services they were entitled to expect. Not because we were pursuing an equality of outcomes for all, not possible, not right. But what we wanted to do was to use the power of the state, as I say, as an enabler, as a guarantor, to make sure that every individual in the country had an equal worth, that they had the same entitlement to the opportunities. And the state was there to make sure that they did, and that was upheld. Now, it was a very different idea, therefore, of the role of a Labour government and the role of the state. We lived down both the idea that Labour was just a tax and spend party that just wanted to raise and raise tax and spend to ever greater heights no matter you know how well it was spent. We had to live that down but we also had to see off the Thatcherite view that people didn't want to spend on the public realm because they didn't want to pay uh, taxes, which was, had been had become a sort of received uh, uh, wisdom. People liked the outcomes in better service delivery uh, as a result of how we were uh, spending money. They liked the greater opportunity. They liked the higher standards that were available to them. We really did change the political weather in, in Britain. We seriously moved that political dial. And the evidence for that, or the testimony to what we achieved in doing so, was what followed. When Cameron and Osborne and whatever, yes, they had to deal with the financial crisis and a public sector deficit, true, but in so many areas they accepted the principles, the premises of new Labour uh, policy. They knew they couldn't reverse it. You know, to present a sort of modernised Conservative Party, they had to embrace the changes that we had made, and in many respects, those principles and those approaches uh, that we introduced haven't seriously been contested and therefore I think that in a very real sense we did lay the foundations for and we did usher in a progressive century. So that was Tony Blair. How have your feelings about him changed over the course of this programme? I'm not going to lie to you Stephen, I still want him back. I still want him to come back and save us. I think the thing I found it sort of interesting about this one is, in a way, I said, oh, I have these sort of two things and I can't dissociate them. The weird thing is I think it, it deepened both of them, right? My sort of deeper, yeah, my renewed appreciation of the social policy advances, in a way, just actually makes me even angrier about the conscious decision to just destroy a huge amount of political capital on a disastrous war that was disastrous for the people who fought in it has been disastrous for the country. It's because there were so many things about that government that really were good and that were honourable and decent that it makes the depth of the betrayal of that one terrible act all the greater. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it just... yeah, And the fact that the repercussions of it on this country have been so 
Grievous. But yeah, so we've obviously, we've, it's a slightly weird thing where we've done the repercussions last week. Now onto the person who Blair inherited ruined public realm from, but other things as well, John Major. You've been listening to Prime Ministerial with me, Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman. And me, John Elledge, author of The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. With special thanks to Caroline Crampton and Nick Hilton. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe.